0: The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that may result from listening to this podcast.
1: This is the scream kings podcast i'm max george and i'm nathaniel darkish i don't want to kill you but i will if i have to i'm so excited for this episode me too oh this is a huge milestone for the scream kings definitely what we're referencing here is the
2: fact that this is our very first interview episode specifically who we interviewed for this wonderful amazing episode is or actually i should say i interviewed because unfortunately max wasn't able to be present i interviewed author dan wells now i give him a full introduction in the interview section which we'll uh, jump to in a minute but I'm just really excited that I was able to sit down with uh, an author that I really admire and and really enjoy his work, and so this is just
1: a really cool episode for us. Like I said, a huge milestone, I think, for our podcast in that we are finally branching out a little bit and engaging with the community, and someone as kind of influential and amazing as Dan Wells this is just a huge, huge honor for the podcast, and I'm so appreciative of him for doing this for us. I...
2: I mean, I, I said thank you probably a dozen times in my interview, but i going to just say it again right here. Thanks, Dan, for being on our podcast. It's super awesome. So um, I guess without further ado, let's jump into the interview. We have a very special interview today uh, with author Dan Wells. Dan is a Whitney Award and Hugo-nominated New York Times bestselling author of 14 novels and five novellas, mostly horror and sci-fi. His works have been adapted into a film and also a play. He writes for TV's series Extinct. He's also the co-host of the Hugo Award winning podcast, Writing Excuses. Did I miss anything there?
0: <laughs> no, that was a, that was very, um, that was impressively thorough. I don't even know how many novellas I have in print, so five apparently. That's good to know. Thank you.
2: But yeah, so I just kind of wanted to get a little bit from you about your background with the horror genre, how you got into it, what are some of your favorites, just kind of whatever you want to share there.
0: Well, I have a strange relationship with horror, I think. Um, I did not for for most of my life consider myself a horror fan, um, but I think that's because I'm not really a slasher movie fan and and I share America's miss understanding of what the horror genre really is. Um, it encompasses so much more than kind of standard horny teens getting murdered slasher movie, which is what most people think of when you say the word horror. Um, there, there's a lot of other stuff and, and so I started writing having been, having grown up reading epic fantasy novels and kind of assumed I would be an epic fantasy novelist as well. And none of those books really worked, and it was not until I tried horror, kind of on a dare from my writing group more than anything else, that I found the genre where I fit. Uh, and it was with I Am Not a Serial Killer, which is, you know, again, it's not really a slasher thing. It's more of an atmospheric, psychological study of, of someone who's trying to be good while surrounded by evil. Um, and that just as weird as it sounds in most places to say it, that felt very comfortable. It felt like coming home. I assume on a podcast called Scream Kings, I can say something like that and people won't look at me weird. Uh, so it's nice to be among my people here.
2: Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like a lot of times people do focus so much on the slasher horror that it that a lot of the best examples of, of the genre kind of fall to the wayside. Um, so I guess what are some of your favorite examples of horror, be it in literature or
0: movies or whatever. Oh, man. That's a wide open question, isn't it? Uh, so I realized as I started writing this book and thinking, why does this feel so, so natural if I've never read horror, I realized that I actually have experienced a lot of it and we just don't tend to think of it that way. You know, obviously Edgar Allan Poe. And that kind of literary tradition. A lot of the Russian literature that I uh, read all through high school and college. I was one of my specialties in college. Um, my actually my favorite horror short story is one that is not usually considered horror. It's called The Yellow Wallpaper, and if anyone out there has read it, they probably read it as part of a high school or college literature class that was talking about feminism. Because the story is about a woman who is having some kind of mental issues and they're never really explained. And uh, the diagnosis, or I guess the, the prescription for that, the solution to the problem is that she's confined to bed rest because they think that'll help her and basically it just drives her mad. She goes stir-crazy, never allowed to leave the room that has this creepy wallpaper, and she completely loses her mind. And yes, I'm not going to deny that that's, you know, a classic piece of feminist literature, but it's also fundamentally terrifying in the way that it depicts a mind falling apart from the inside. And stuff like that is what horror is really made of. Horror films, I kind of feel like we're in a renaissance of those right now. I mean, they've uh, we we've always had here and there really good ones, but you know, a couple years ago we had It Follows, and I feel like that kind of kicked off a new wave of just great stuff. Like right now, The Quiet Place is just blowing records away right and left. People who have who are not horror people are going out and watching it. Um, even my parents who are not horror people at all they're like oh yeah we want to go see the quiet place it sounds awesome and so for whatever reason I feel like uh, there's a lot of horror films right now that are just great examples of of what horror can do personally I, I really
2: am enjoying being able to share the horror that you know is bringing people into these theaters that you know, they wouldn't otherwise be seeing and, and kind of using that as an entry point to sharing a lot of other things that i really love so it's really cool to see that renaissance is kind of opening new doors that were previously closed
0: it really is and um you know i i haven't made any kind of specific study of it so me pointing to it follows as the kind of tip of the spear is probably inaccurate it almost certainly is um but there's just a lot of really exciting things going on, like two, 2016, which is when my movie came out. That's also the year that Train to Busan came out. There, that's you know, there it was so hard to pick the best horror movie of that year. There were two or three others that I just thought were spectacular, and I can't even remember the names of now, and I feel bad. But uh, yeah, we're in the middle of a, I think a bumper crop of fantastic horror.
2: Agreed, definitely. I've enjoyed seeing I Am Not a Serial Killer at the top of a lot of these lists.
0: Yeah, it has been. Um, the movie has been very well received by the people who've seen it, which sadly has not been a ton. I don't feel like the studio's really done a lot to push it, but the people who've seen it tend to love it. It's one of the. Uh, on Netflix, it has one of the highest user ratings of any horror movie that they've got on there. Um, Christopher Lloyd won a an acting award, best supporting actor, from one of the horror movie podcasts uh, that's big in the industry. So it's it's been great to watch people see that. It's also, and you know, anecdotally, I can say as I go around to conventions, more and more often when I uh, am talking about my books, people will say, "Oh, yeah, I saw that movie. That was great." So that's a good sign.
2: Yeah, definitely, and. I've even had some instances where it's kind of come up in unexpected places. Like my father-in-law mentioned just watching it. He's like, oh, hey, have you seen this horror movie on Netflix? I'm like, oh, yeah, and I've read all of the books, and, you know, I, I've met you at conventions. So it was, it was kind of a fun thing to see how just, you know, it kind of randomly popped up even for me.
0: That's awesome.
2: So I guess let's maybe talk a little bit more about the movie, and then we'll kind of talk about the books. Um, but so, what was your experience as far as making the movie? I know that you know you aren't necessarily the big shaker and mover in, in terms of the production of the film, but I know that you were more involved than most writers.
0: Yeah, I uh, it was a it was a fairly small indie production, and because of that, I got to be much more involved than most most authors are, uh, which is great. So. Um, I, that movie actually came about, at this point, I want to say seven years ago. The book had not been out for more than a couple of years. And the director, Billy O'Brien, he was in, um, I can't remember if it was Ireland or England. He's, he's Irish, but he lives in England, and one of the two places he just kind of was looking for a project and stumbled across it in a bookstore. Uh, and just read it and loved it and emailed me directly. And, you know, after, after we kind of signed all the papers, then we had to sit on it for about five years uh, because he was such a small fish, so to speak, and uh, the Irish Film Board kept the rights alive, which was wonderful of them, and uh, for five years they were out there kind of just hitting the pavement going from door to door with producers in Hollywood and all over trying to find investors who were willing to help make the get the movie made. And then when it was made, you know, when that when that money finally showed up, then we went into super fast mode. <laughs> like we were running around crazy because we had the money but we we wouldn't have it for long. We had to start getting into production within months. And so that's when we did all the casting. And at that point, after five years, I'd come to know Billy well enough that he actually came over and he stayed in my house. This is when I lived in Germany, so it was a quick kind of trip across the channel for him. And he came over with one of the producers and we just kind of went through everything. We talked about casting. We talked about visual design. We uh, polished up a lot of the things that he'd spent five years working on so that then we could go right into production and i actually got to spend about 10 days on set when they were filming i was there for most of the exterior stuff all of the indoor shots were done in minneapolis and all of the outside stuff was done in a place called virginia a little town called virginia that's like three hours north of uh, minneapolis and that's where i was was up in virginia minnesota it was incredibly cold.
2: <laughs> so, so lucky you you got to be for all of the most freezing cold shots.
0: Yeah, and and you know most of those, the reasons that they're so cold is because it's the middle of the night and people are getting murdered. And uh, so we had Chris Lloyd there, and at the end of one of very particularly kind of nasty scene it's the one where John comes across a big like semi-trailer, like a big diesel truck that's left with its engines running and the lights on and he kind of walks around the side and comes into the front and there in the headlights is uh, is the monster ripping a guy apart. And uh, we filmed all of that at like one in the morning. It was something like 20 or 30 gre- degrees below zero. Just freakishly, stupidly cold. And uh We had Chris Lloyd and Max Records screaming at each other over and over for take after take. And when we finally finished and we went back to the hotel and we were all kind of huddled around trying to warm up again after this emotionally grueling, physically taxing thing, uh, Chris Lloyd came up to me and said, never write a scene like that again. (laughs) Which is one of my favorite stories from the shoot. It's not every day that a film legend tells you to stop doing your job. But it was great. Um, We had a lot of fun on set. Uh, We would love to uh, get back together again and make the sequels, but that's up to the distributor, and at least thus far, they haven't shown any particular interest in it. So, we'll just keep our fingers crossed and be ready next time money shows up out of nowhere.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, I would say probably my favorite book in the series maybe, like, three or four. So... I would love to see that in film, but we'll have to see what happens there.
0: Yeah, I think at this point that it is very unlikely that this particular production will have sequels, but there was a lot of interest from a lot of different companies before, so we're kind of keeping that in our back pocket and, and, you know, if we get more movies with this group, that's fantastic and I love them. If we don't, the rights will eventually revert, and then we've got some other people we can go to and say, hey, remember that thing you asked if they were free? Well, they're free now, so we'll
2: see what happens. Either way, it's super awesome. Um, So I guess going on to the casting choices, obviously Christopher Lloyd is mind-bogglingly awesome to have. Um, How did you feel about all of the casting choices?
0: I thought they really did a good job. Max Records was actually the first guy that we got on board. And there are a couple different versions of this story, but they all boil down to uh, the director and, or not the director, but one of the producers uh, and I both independently picked Max Records and told the director, hey, uh, this guy would be fantastic for John Cleaver. You should look into him. And uh, so having received that from both sides, the director went and talked to him and, and loved him as much as we do. So we're really glad. He actually, um, we got him just a a year or two after, uh, Where the Wild Things Are, which was his first big movie. And he stayed on the hook with us for most of those five years. Just kind of gentleman's agreement. Once you get the money, let me know and I'm more than happy to do this movie. And so when it finally happened, we went to him and he said, sure. And, And we are so glad that we had him. I thought he was just stellar. And, of course, Chris Lloyd made the movie work as well. But what really made it special for me were a lot of the side parts. Uh, The woman named Dee, who plays uh, Kay Crowley, Chris Lloyd's wife, she's really kind of the emotional center of the movie. Um, We had Laura Fraser as John Cleaver's mom, and she was just spectacular. I thought she did a great job as, uh, you know, that kind of... Mom who's in way over her head. Um, you know, I've got six kids of my own, and if any of them were even vaguely similar to John Cleaver, I don't know how I would deal with that. <laughs> but Laura Fraser did a very good job. and uh, you know, all the other people the the Lucy who played Brooke and Ray Ray who played Max, and uh, the woman Mark woman who played Margaret, and I can't I can't remember her name off the top of my head and I feel bad about that. Uh, But she was just phenomenal. Like, I would like to get sequels just so we can get more of Margaret and more of Brooke because those two actors in particular, they've got so much more range than we were able to show with their relatively minor roles in the movie.
2: Yeah, and definitely some sequels would really show that off.
0: Absolutely. In fact, with Lucy, one of the things that, one of the issues that we ran into a lot during those five years trying to raise the money to make the movie is that. There, you really can't, at least for now, make a movie with a teenage boy as a headliner. For whatever reason, that just doesn't fly. There's nobody in those demographics who can carry a full movie on their shoulders. But you can do it with a teenage girl. You know, you look into the past, uh, back when they were teenagers, someone like Selena Gomez or someone like uh, Jennifer Lawrence. They can totally carry movies. They can headline movies. And they're, that's still true today. It's much easier to get financing for a movie with a female teenage lead than with a male teenage lead. And uh, so we had more than one producer ask us, would you be willing to make this movie if we made John Cleaver a girl? If we did Jane Cleaver. We decided to stick with a boy for the role because we liked the kind of father-son Twisted dynamic of of him and the monster, but once we met Lucy uh, Who played Brooke we realized you know she totally could have been our John Cleaver and that would have been just amazing So uh, I would love to see what what she could do with more with the much meatier roles that Brooke has in the later books
2: One thing that I know that you I've heard you mention at uh, some conventions is that the ending being different for the film, was something that was a concern uh, back when it was at the script level, but then it kind of changed your mind once you actually saw the film. Can you share a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, and more than anything, that's just because I am very inexperienced with screenplays. It's something I'm trying to teach myself. I uh, wrote for a TV show last year, like you said, Uh, but at the time that we started the movie, I didn't really know how screenplays worked, and so when they sent me their draft, uh, and they went through many, many, many drafts before they they ended up with the final one that they used for the movie, and they eventually sent me this one where they had changed the ending, and I read it, and I thought it was just a disaster. I thought it was going to fail profoundly, and to be fair... It was an ending I'd already kind of tried in book form and couldn't make it work. But it does work on the screen, and that's why I talk about my own inexperience with screenplays. The, the ending from the movie would not have worked in the book at all. But the ending from the book I don't think would have worked in the movie either, because the different mediums have very different needs and they have very different um, abilities and different strengths. And so I think it was very smart of Billy and also Christopher Hyde who was uh, the other the kind of the co-screenwriter um, to to see that and to tweak the ending so that it worked on film
2: So one thing that really strikes me about the film is it very it feels very um, nostalgic in terms of its style uh, you know it feels very 80s horror and do you think that there's anything about the story that really made it work with that sort of style.
0: I'm not sure if there's anything intrinsic to the story. The uh, director, and in particular the cinematographer, uh, Robbie, they really wanted to give it kind of an old school 70s look to it. They shot it on film. It's actually the very last movie made to our knowledge on Kodak film because that film company went out of business, and Robbie, with his own money, went out and he he bought two movies worth of film and then a fridge to keep them in his garage so that they wouldn't go bad, and he hasn't used that other movie worth of film yet. Uh, And until he does, we're pretty sure that we're the last movie ever made with Kodak Film. And because it has that film quality, it does have a very tactile, different feel to it than video and uh, digital, which is what most movies are made with today. And so it does have a very nostalgic quality to it in the way that it looks and the way that it feels to watch it. I don't know if that comes from my story at all. Um, other than the fact that it's small-town America, but uh, the, the two styles do mesh together very
2: well. Agreed. So let's kind of move on to the John Cleaver books. One thing I wanted to touch on is just to hear a little bit about your process in terms of kind of planning out the book, you know, what sort of research you're doing in terms of uh, looking into mental illness, and also about uh, the serial killers.
0: Well, Kind of the incentive, the impetus to write the book in the first place was because I've always already been fascinated with serial killers in the same way that John is in the story. And so I had this kind of armchair historian knowledge sitting in the back of my mind anyway with no real outlet. And I eventually, like I said, my writing group kind of talked me into doing a horror movie based on that concept of, uh, you know, the, the kid with all the, all the markers, all the predictors for serial killer behavior, but who's trying to avoid them and trying to be good. And so uh, his obsession with serial killers kind of is my own obsession as well. That's, that's the one place where John and I really overlap quite a bit. And so I didn't have to do a ton of research into that. I still did because I wanted to make sure I got all my facts straight. Um, but the majority of the research that I had to do was in criminal profiling, which is kind of a, an offshoot of serial killer lore, and also in mortuary science to make sure that I described how embalming actually works and uh, describe it well enough that That someone who knows what they're talking about won't throw the book across the room. That took a lot of study. And uh, I think I did a pretty good job. I've had a couple of morticians ask me where I studied. So I feel like that's a victory.
2: Definitely. So one thing that's present in both those books and also in The Hollow City is mental illness. And I know that at panels... I've heard you mentioned that accurate portrayal of mental illness is something that is definitely a goal when you were writing all of those books. Can you share a little bit more about why you feel like that's important and also you know, kind of what sort of research you had to do there?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Mental illness, mental health is kind of a, I don't want to say a hobby horse, but it is a a topic that is very close to me and that I feel very strongly about. It's, uh, I've been in a couple of different anthologies designed to raise awareness of mental health. Uh, I edited one of them with my brother called Altered Perceptions. Uh, The other one just came out a couple weeks ago. It's called uh, Life Inside My Mind. And part of that is because of my own family. I've got, um, you know, children with mental health issues. I've got siblings with mental health issues. Uh, My grandparents, the essay that I wrote for Life inside my mind was about my uh, grandparents struggle with Alzheimer's and how I was living with them helping them through that and in learning about mental health I learned some very disturbing statistics and I won't soapbox for you right now except to say that everyone needs to go out and and learn what they can about about recognizing and and helping people with mental health issues but Kind of one of the basic things that I I learned very quickly is that mental health, when it is portrayed in entertainment media, is almost always either demonized or canonized, you know? On the one hand, you've got something like Silence of the Lambs, where part of the reason that the villain is evil is because they are transgender. And transgender is, is not really a mental health issue, so that's not a spectacular example to use. But the idea that someone is evil because they have a mental health problem is very prevalent in our society. Um, if you look at television, especially stuff like law and order and, and you know all the CSI clones, if someone if there's a character with a mental health problem on television, The odds are actually very good that they are going to be a violent uh, antagonist in some way, which is the opposite of real life. People with mental health are actually much less prone to violence than people with with no mental health issues at all. And And yet we tend to portray portray them as bad guys. I'm sorry, what was that?
2: Oh, sorry, and much more likely to be victims of violence.
0: Yes, exactly. In real life, they're more likely to be the victims of violence, and on television and in movies, they're more likely to to be the perpetrators of it. On the other hand, you've got something like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which really just presents very serious life-altering mental health issues as a lifestyle choice. And that kind of overwhelming sense of who are we to decide what is normal and how they should live their lives. They should be free to believe anything that they want. You know, that's a nice sentiment. But in practice, if people have severe mental health issues that is affecting their ability to function in society, that is a problem and and they need help. They need treatment the same as anyone else who is sick. And you can look at that old kind of canonized attitude that you can see in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest really affected a lot of national policy. Ronald Reagan shut down a ton of mental health institutions, just a phenomenal number of mental health institutions because of that attitude that we should just allow people to believe what they want. And so there there needs to be a, a safer middle ground, one where we're not forcing people into certain patterns and certain thoughts, but one where we are helping people who need our help. It is in America today, you are something like 10 to 20 times more likely to be in prison than in therapy if you have a mental health problem. And that's just unconscionable. We need to be better as a society. So when I write my books, I don't have mental health issues in all of them. But I do have, in a lot of them, Hollow City, like you mentioned, in the John Cleaver series, there was a character in the Partial series with autism. Um, I I try to use these characters, and I try to present them as neutrally as possible, if, if that's the right word, um, to say, here is this person, and they have these struggles, but they also have these good qualities, and they're just a normal character like everybody else in the book.
2: Thank you for sharing that. I definitely feel very strongly about the presentation of mental illness. I have some mental illness issues myself, so it's really good to have, you know, media that can present it as healthfully as possible. And so I appreciate that in your writing.
0: Oh, well, thank you very much. And thank you for bringing it up. Because, uh, you know, the, the American Psychiatry Association suggests or supposes that right now in America, one out of every three adults has some kind of mental health issue. So if, you know, listeners out there, if you don't think you know anyone who does, you totally do and you're just probably not seeing it. So take the time to figure out who needs your help and how you can help them.
2: Second battle. Okay, I guess going back to uh, the John Cleaver books. So I was one thing I've been uh, curious about for a long time is... Why is it that you chose specifically uh, Gacy to be John's namesake?
0: Well, for one thing, because he was very recognizable. And I was worried that if I did somebody weird that no one had ever heard of, you know, Herbert Mullen, as fantastic as he would be to base a character around, uh, not everybody knows that name. And if you do, you don't necessarily know what he did. Um, You know, and some of the more famous ones there's actually, I think, much more Son of Sam in John Cleaver than there is John Wayne Gacy. But he's very clearly named, designed to, you know, John Wayne Cleaver is is a name designed to invoke John Wayne Gacy. And that's because of the classic image of the clown, I think represents so much about serial killer psychology and sociopathic psychology. The idea that you present one face to the world and under the surface, there's something completely just 180 degrees different. And Gacy represents that, at least for me, really, really well. He was, you know, one of the lines that John Cleaver uses in the book is that, you know, 362 days out of the year, he was the best neighbor anyone had. He was popular at parties, people liked him, kids liked him. And then three days out of the year, he would go out and he would murder people and chop them up and put them in his basement. And the idea that those two people are actually just the same person and can swing so wildly from one extreme to the other is really just a, I mean, it's the perfect metaphor for uh, that category as a whole. And so John Wayne Gacy made a very, very easy shorthand to get that point across.
2: So... One thing I'm also curious about is kind of what sort of went into your creative process when you were planning The Withered, the monsters of your books.
0: Well, that was, uh, that's a good question, <laughs> because uh, The Withered were kind of reverse engineered, really, more than anything else. Um, I wrote the first book, I wrote I Am Not a Serial Killer, with very specific needs. I wanted it to be supernatural, because that's what I'd grown up reading. It uh, could have very easily, I feel, been just a straight crime novel, but I wanted that supernatural element specifically because I, you know, one of, one of the things about sociopathy is that people with sociopathy feel distinct and separate from the rest of society. Whether they feel that they are better than us or worse than us, whatever it is, they feel different. They feel like they're not connected. And so the idea of a human being who cannot connect with other human beings looking at a monster who is literally inhuman but can connect, that he is closer to humanity than John Cleaver is, that kind of was the whole idea in a nutshell for me. And so in the process of creating a monster like that, someone who is fundamentally not us but who can live among us and learn to love us is where Mr. Crowley comes from. And then as the series went on, I realized, and my editor at the time, Moshe Feder, he was the first one who pointed it out to me, was I needed some kind of consistent mythology. Now that I had multiple preachers, I either needed to find a single explanation for all of them or come up with something, and I didn't want to do kind of the buffy, hellmouth idea. I wanted to, to be a little more... Um, original than that rather than relying on other people's ideas, so it wasn't until book four when I got into the second trilogy that I sat down and said, You know what I need to <laughs> I need to explain something about where these things are and and where they come from. Um, the basic premise established with Mr. Crowley that I had to work around with all the rest of the monsters was that they, um, they're kind of parallel to and parasitic of our own society. That they all lack something fundamental that makes them inhuman, but they can get it in a weird kind of outsized way. So Mr. Crowley did not have his own body, but he could steal bodies from other people. Um, And then in the second book, you've got someone who does not have their own emotions and can only feel other people's emotions. And then the uh, third book, the the monster in that nobody, is someone who does not have her own identity. And has to kind of steal identity and sense of self from other people. And, uh, you know, kind of building on that idea, is where we get into the Withered. And by the time you get into books, I, I guess this is explained a little bit even as early as four, but definitely by six, you realize that there is kind of this whole community of them and that they are actually, you know, humans who have changed themselves. They they gave up something they thought they didn't want in, or, in order to get power or to get freedom or to get something else but you know in losing that one fundamental part of humanity they realize that they are now forever distinct they're forever othered and they will never be able to come back and that was a really you know that to me was the key to making the second trilogy work was that idea of willfully giving up your humanity which is why in all three of those books of the second trilogy books 4 5 and 6 that's kind of a question that John wrestles with is i know that i'm human i know that i can connect to other people now you know i've learned all those lessons from the first trilogy but now i have the choice of whether i want to leave and whether i want to go be something else now so so that's kind of my ramblings about the withered
2: i really love the withered because they Have so much in common with our hero, which is so unique, I feel like, in in a lot of horror. You know, sometimes, you know, we have horror where bad things are happening to good people or to bad people or whatever, but I love that John has to, you know, struggle to find his humanity, even when, yeah, faced with this kind of alternative. So I really feel like that kind of helps the story stand apart from a lot of other horror.
0: Well, thank you very much. And I, uh, you know, I think that all springs back from that original concept for Mr. Crowley that I wanted the monster who could who could love and connect to humans. And that changed everything. You know, once we had that, once, once we had a group of people who did not just consider us Food or toys or whatever, then that really kind of altered the way that the rest of them came out. Even the ones that hate us, even the you know the straight up villains like you get in book four and things like that, they uh, they are different, and we can see our bits of ourselves in them uh, because they come from us, and because they'll never be complete without
2: us. I think that I really found interesting. Uh, hearing you talk about the series especially like on writing excuses was that the popularity of the series is really uh, taken off in Germany what do you think it is about maybe German culture that made it uh, stand out there more than maybe in the US?
0: I'm not certain that there's anything specific we can say about German culture uh, that, that fits this book, but certainly the German book market, <laughs> this feels like a cop-out answer, but uh, in America, the biggest genre by a mile and a half is romance. That is what sells in America more than anything else. And in Germany, and to a lesser degree, most of, of continental Europe, the big genre is crime. That is their romance. That's what everybody reads, that's what dominates bookstores and grocery checkout lines, is crime fiction. And also, they have a tendency to group horror and crime fiction into the same place. In Germany, they tend to share the same shelves, and in France, they actually have a very specific genre called Polar which includes both crime fiction and thrillers and horror, all under one umbrella. And so because of that, I think it was just easier for people to find it. Uh, in America, I'm Not a Serial Killer is kind of a weird niche thing. You First of all, you have to be into horror, and second of all, you have to be in this weird kind of melancholy horror. Whereas in Germany, it's just mainstream fiction and everybody reads it. So. I think it was just easier for people to find and easier for them to latch onto, just because of the way their book market works.
2: Makes sense.
0: But it's been interesting. I mean, not to go too far into my uh, other books because you're you're mostly talking about horror here. But uh, all of my books sell differently in different markets, which makes sense. You know, um, the thrillers are all much bigger in Europe than they are in the U.S. Whereas my science fiction is much bigger in the U.S. than it is in Europe. All of the John Cleaver books have been national bestsellers in Germany, all six of them. Whereas the first Partials book, when it was released, I think we sold about 2,000 copies in Germany, which is nothing. And so it's it's been interesting. And, and once we figured out how to do it, it's been a lot of fun to kind of navigate these different markets and say, oh, well, what do they read in Argentina? Well, we've got something for that. And just then watch it take off because we we kind of understand what the market is looking for now.
2: Yeah, and definitely your career has resulted in so many types of books. It's kind of interesting to see how broad of an audience that you can pull in, but maybe they might only look at one of your series at a time.
0: Well, the the hope, the ideal situation is that someone will read one of my series and then say, oh, well, I like this author, but I've never read horror, or I've never read cyberpunk, or I've never read post-apocalypse. I'm gonna give that a shot anyway, just because I like the author. And we see a little bit of that, uh, which is good. Right now, (laughs) the two of the big genres that I read all the time and have never written books in, or at least have never published books in, are historical fiction and fantasy. And this year, those are the two that I'm writing. So. I think at this point my agent's just thrown up her hands and said, Whatever, Dan. Write whatever you want and we'll do our best. Because uh, I don't have a consistent brand other than Dan Wells, you know?
2: I, for one, have enjoyed the variety. So I guess kind of moving to, to, towards wrapping up here, Yeah, you know, what can we expect from you coming forward? Like, What sort of uh, upcoming projects can we look forward to?
0: The manuscript that I just finished, a week or two, I think it was last week, um, yeah, about a week and a half ago, it was The Apocalypse Guard, which is a uh, young adult science fiction that I am co-writing with Brandon Sanderson. And the two of us have been friends forever, long before either of us were published. We've always talked about writing together, and now we are. So that one is not sold anywhere, but... Um, he, he wrote a draft, I wrote a draft, now he's it's back with him again, we're kind of ping-ponging the book back and forth and it's been a lot of fun to watch the different voices that arise when the two of us work together. So that will come out at some point, I don't know when. Um, the project that I'm currently working on right now, that I spent most of the day on today is uh, called Ghost Station, which is my historical fiction about spies in the Cold War in Berlin. That was previously called Player Piano. I've changed the name because Ghost Station sounds way cooler. Though, to be (laughs) on the other hand, Ghost Station does sound much more like a horror title, and I worry that people will pick it up thinking there's going to be genre elements. And there's not. It's just historical fiction. It's about cryptographers uh so that one is a lot of fun it's very different it is far more different from anything i've written than anything else that i've written that that sentence doesn't sound like it makes sense but it does um but yeah it's a uh just kind of a straight spy thriller set in the early 60s in berlin and uh anyway so that's that's what i'm working on um I hope to have that project... Uh, the book's finished, I'm going back and I'm doing a big polish rewrite on it, and I hope to have that done by the end of May. And then the rest of the year is dedicated to my science fiction, fantasy, big crazy crossover book. I
2: I hope so. Where can people find you online?
0: Okay, so, I am the Dan Wells. There is also a just Dan Wells And he is an actor and a bodybuilder in Hollywood, and he's awesome. And we have the same name, and he got to everything first. So he has Dan Wells on Twitter and danwells.com, etc., etc. And so if you have tried to contact me online, and instead you've gotten this really handsome-looking actor-bodybuilder guy telling you that he's the wrong one, that was him. Uh, And it happens often enough that we know each other at this point. Um... So I am the Dan Wells, And that is my website, that is my email, that is my Twitter, that is Facebook, that's everything, thedanwells.com.
2: All right, and then is there any currently available book that you're especially wanting to pitch?
0: Well, the most recent is called Active Memory, which is the third book in my cyberpunk series. It came out in February, and it is wonderful. If you've never read anything by me, ever, and if John Cleaver, doesn't sound interesting to you, then the next one I recommend is called Extreme Makeover. It's a standalone science fiction about cloning and uh, kind of the world of uh, beauty companies. And that I consider one of my very best books. And that's kind of where I tell people to start is either with I'm Not a Serial Killer or Extreme Makeover.
2: And having read all of your books, I can say that, yeah, they're they're all great. So no matter where you go the pick up a Dan Wells book you're you're not gonna be disappointed
0: awesome well thank you
2: thank you so much for being on the podcast I think we should be good to wrap this up
0: well wonderful
2: thank you very much for having me on your show oh man what a great interview
1: oh I don't know I'm getting goosebumps thinking of how excited I am for where we're going
2: now I guess one thing that we didn't really have a chance to to do uh when I was on with Dan because I don't I think his level of bites might not quite work out as far as kind of what we usually do. Talk a little bit more about what we think the I Am Not a Serial Killer film, and specifically uh, take the opportunity to give it
1: our rating. Yeah, this is a r- really such a, a fun movie that we've been able to see, and we've watched it together, and it was just its very, very groundbreaking, I think, as far as horror goes. and. Um, Especially too, as well as mental health and how they kind of tackle that and show it in almost a darker light, but still maintaining the respect. I I just I think it's a brilliant movie. I have to
2: agree. I mean, there's there's definitely a reason why the book appealed to me so much, and then you know the the entire series, and then you know when I heard that they were uh, finally going to be able to make a movie, I was just super excited. Um, you know, I I so when it when it first came out, it wasn't widely available in theaters. There's a very limited release, and but it was uh, uh, available on demand really quickly. So as soon as it came out, I got some friends together uh, and we watched it right away. And then later on, when it moved to Netflix, you know, I was able to show Max the movie. But yeah, I was kind of first in line to, to see it. It was just sort of my attitude, and so it was just a, a really cool opportunity to finally see this book that I uh, enjoyed you know, several years ago in a film setting when you know, I honestly never expected to be able to see uh, this particular uh, piece of literature in a film setting, so it's really cool to see something I already loved get turned into a movie when I never thought that would even be possible, especially with such great actors as this.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say that the casting for this movie is phenomenal. Um, not only for John Wayne Cleaver, kind of the lead, uh, but we've got Christopher Lloyd as Mr. Crowley, which who doesn't love Christopher Lloyd? As far as Christopher Lloyd goes, it's it's really cool to see him in a non-humorous
2: like humorous setting. I know that uh, he's said in several interviews that this was kind of a, a fun break from... What's kind of become the established norm. You know, he's always the the kooky old man, and has been since the '80s. You know, ever since you know, Back to the Future. So this is just such a cool opportunity for him to show off his range as an actor, and I think he really killed it.
1: And again, not only him, but I feel like the whole cast. You know, it, it does have a very indie feel, the movie. But at the same time, the cast is just so spot on. It's really hard to to find something that. critique in my opinion
2: yeah definitely I feel it's a very strong film honestly if I had to pick anything less than in love with about it it would just be maybe some of the dialogue could have been a little bit more forward in terms of how it balanced with the background music but that's kind
1: of straightening at a nap you know for me I think my biggest critique of the film is kind of the pacing I felt like it took quite a while to kind of get into its rhythm i understand why they kind of did that and you know it is an indie film and so there are some differences there but at some points I just kind of felt like okay let's let's move along a little bit and so that would probably be one of my biggest critiques I'd say if not the only critique
2: yeah and and honestly I would say that that was something that bothered me less um, it it definitely you know they were very clearly going for kind of a 70s or 80s horror aesthetic tone and the pacing and everything that, that kind of went into how that film was made and so I felt like it was a very deliberate choice to have it paced that way and I felt like it worked. It, I mean there might have been a few moments that kind of dragged on a little bit but as a whole I felt like it made it feel quiet and contemplative
1: which really made the moments of horror pop out. I can see where you're coming from, but I, I've got to stick to my guns on this and that, I don't know, I just kind of felt at some parts, especially in the beginning, that it just needed a little something extra to kind of push it along. I mean, it, it eventually gets to the point where things really start to pick up and you know, shit kind of hits the fan, but in the beginning, I don't know, I was kind of wanting... A little bit more information about what the situation was actually happening
2: there and and definitely you know the mystery is a big part of it but i can see how it might not have worked as well and and it's kind of cool to see that it didn't work as well for you um at the beginning you know, because, I mean, I knew what was going to happen, so I think that might have made, uh, made it a little bit easier for me to get through those sections.
1: Right. I was just going to say, you know, where you had read the book, you kind of knew what to expect, and, you know, you had this idea in the back of your head of, okay, this character is doing this, and someone who hasn't read the book, unfortunately, I, it's on my to-do list. I think it, that's a good point that you made, is that we had this kind of different viewpoint of what was going on.
2: So... I guess we've kind of touched on what we didn't like about it as much. Now let's dig into
1: like what really
2: stood out in the film. But what really is, is one of your favorite scenes or moments or aspects of the film?
1: Um, so kind of it's twofold and I don't really have a specific scene per se. Um, just because I think the movie was so great. Um, but two things that really st- stuck out with me is, you know, I'm a huge advocate of mental health. Um, I think there is a lot of underrepresentation in the media and a lot of kind of exaggeration of what it really isn't. And I think this movie really buckled down and showed a side of mental health that is, it's kind of dark and twisted, but at the same time, we need to understand that, you know, mental health is a very hard place to be in sometimes. Um, I've struggled with depression, anxiety, and you know, there are moments where you just feel like you're suffocating or you're drowning and you don't know what to do. And I think this movie really portrayed that kind of internal struggle so well. Um, You know, with John Wayne Cleaver and his kind of struggle between, you know, I am not a serial killer, but I have these tendencies and what do I do with them?
2: Yeah. In the interview, Dan and I, you know, really kind of dug into mental health and and its way it's portrayed, but, you know, I, I do just want to underline again, yeah, I I love the fact that, you know, we're able to see a sociopath who is actively working on, you know, what that means for him as a member of society. Someone who is suffering from a mental illness, but doesn't want that to be his sole defining characteristic. And not wanting the all of the bad stereotypes and all of the things that could potentially be bad because of it be what
1: defines it. And, you know, I think that raises a good point that, you know, in society, whenever we hear the term sociopath, we automatically assume, you know, some Ted Bundy, Jim Jones, kind of a persona who's just completely out of their mind and, you know, just murderous rampage. And, you know, by definition, that's not what it means. And this movie really gives you insight into this struggle between This lack of empathy, but at the same time having a very strict code of morals and sticking to them.
2: Yeah, and and feeling frustrated regularly and, and confused because you don't understand emotions the same way as others do. And I gotta give props to Max Records for his excellent acting as John because there's definitely moments where you really feel, man, like, yeah, he wants to pull out his hair because he just doesn't understand. Why people, why other people think the way they do or feel the way they do.
1: So probably my second favorite thing about this movie, and again, there's not really, I mean, there are a lot of scenes that I can pick out, but none of them, kind of, do what I'm about to talk about. To me, is that it really does a fantastic job at showing the complexity of murder. And that kind of sounds creepy to say. Um,
2: Hey, it's our podcast this one. it's true Roller. i've
1: summoned a demon on this podcast so talking about murders probably far from that yeah this, this is kind of benign <laughs> compared to some of the things we did. <laughs>
2: um
1: but just how methodical murder really is you know again in typical media that you see especially horror murder is portrayed as this like clean process that you do in 30 minutes and there's hardly any blood and you can clean it up real quick and and that's just not true um there's so much blood in the human body and you know to stab someone or to cut them in any way there's going to be a lot of cleanup and blood coagulates and that makes cleanup not easy and i i don't know i just thought it did a really really good job at showing that you know, to have pre-calculated murder takes a lot of effort, a lot of energy into into planning that out.
2: And I love how that's kind of mirrored with the fact that John has to go to similar lengths to not murder, but you know, to, to kind of make steps towards, you know, uncovering this mystery and, and confronting Crowley and all of that, it's very, complex kind of from both sides you know you see the murderer and you see the hero and they kind of don't function normally but they both have to kind of go through a lot of the same
1: uh, steps in order to achieve what they need to absolutely it kind of takes that protagonist antagonist motif and strips it away and you have to kind of reconstruct it you know you've got this murderer with morals and is he the protagonist or the antagonist and you you have to decide that for yourself.
2: Yeah, that really does a good job of transitioning into one of my favorite aspects of the film, which was um, how well it portrayed Crowley and and like you know his relationship with his wife and his relationship with his neighbors, and how underneath all of that he had to do something that you know, he used to not care about, but now he has to you know do in spite of kind of everything that he has kind of come to stand for in his community and, and had to kind of shaped his whole existence around his love for this woman. And the cost of that is that he has to murder to continue to be with her. And that's kind of a really complex uh, and sympathetic sort of thing to see a monster have to do. You know, it's, it's weird that it's that we're much more prone to empathize with this villain than we are with the hero and i feel like that's you know both the you know, one of the most horrific aspects of the film and also uh one of the just best in terms of storytelling you know
1: what makes it so compelling to watch or read so to keep this episode from being like three hours long <laughs> yeah we better wrap up what would you say you know, your favorite part of this movie slash book would be, and you have to pick one Nathaniel.
2: I feel like in many ways, my favorite part is when it's revealed that Crowley is a monster, not just a pillow. Agreed. And and, and that, that scene that really kind of turns everything on its head where um, he, he picks up that, you know, homeless man who, who, is going to try to stab and, and rob him, and you're expecting, oh, he's the murderer, he's the one who's doing this. You know that that homeless guy is is the is the problem. And you know, as a viewer, you don't know what's going to happen. You're like, oh man, like the, the nice old man from next door is going to die, and then he turns around and just like extends this giant claw and stabs the dude, and steals his organs.
1: <laughs> one of those classic horror, oh shit, moments where you really are like, oh, oh, and not a lot of horror movies nowadays can do this.
2: Yeah, or nearly as effectively. And so I, I love how it kind of takes everything you're expecting, because you are having you know a very realistic clinical look at, okay, this is how serial killers work. And you find out that it's a supernatural serial killer, and it's the nice old man from next door who loves his wife. So that moment really just kind of, probably speaks to me you know most as as kind of something that i want to do as a writer to be able to have a moment that is that you know kind of kick you in the face but
1: in a good way for the story agreed all right so as far as screams and king or excuse me screams and grounds go as far as screams where would you say this lies this is uh, scary and frightening like a
2: lot of the horror is kind of more existential in this, um, and so I would just put it at a six. It's it is scary, there are some really strong like horror moments, but it didn't like scare the crap out of me by any means. I think it's a fantastic horror film, but it doesn't like keep up at as, much as
1: I'd agree. I think a lot of the scares and a lot of the intensity behind this movie are much more subtle. I would probably give it a five, but honestly, nothing in this show scared me per se. But at the same time, the scares were very intelligent and very thought out, and that's why I've got to give it a five.
2: Okay, so now let's talk crowns. What would you rate it as an overall film?
1: Um, I would probably give it an eight. The acting was superb. The story and plot is just really intricate and very thought out. But again, I felt like it had a lot of issues with timing, especially in the beginning. And sometimes I felt like I needed more background information about the main character. Yeah, I don't I, I don't know. For some reason, my heart is really steadfast on a, a number 8 instead of pushing it to a 9, which I think it, it definitely does deserve but as far as my experience with it i'd give it an eight
2: i would have to give it an eight as well i really thought hard about giving it a nine because i really do love the film a lot but i i do have to agree that there are a few aspects of the film that i feel like that the book did a better job of, of bringing forward and and i think that some of the moments in the in the film kind of almost function more as like subtle nods to the book that should have been more explicitly portrayed in the film for example the fact that john is specifically really interested in gacy which is why he dresses up as you know a clown for halloween that was something that i thought was really interesting because you know he's john wayne cleaver and you know even though his parents actually named him after john wayne the actor he himself you know kind of identified with John Wayne Casey. But yeah, so I mean, I, I just feel like there's a lot of moments that it's it's cool if you know what you're looking for, but I feel like the we could have maybe more explicitly said, like, hey, like this is what we're doing with the scene. And I appreciate subtlety, but I feel like sometimes it went too subtle, so a lot of the audience would miss things that really are some of my favorite things aspect of the story. And I
1: think that's kind of where I want to rate it as an 8 because I, I didn't know that and I appreciate a movie that kind of gives an homage to its readers if it started out as a book I think that is you know a very awesome characteristic of a movie but yeah not reading the book sometimes I felt a little lost in places and wanted more and it never executed so
2: so i guess that puts us at five and a half screens and a solid eight as rating for crowns.
1: and more of the story is it's a fantastic movie if you want a good horror slash thriller definitely watch this one
2: yeah it, and i think it's a really accessible film for people who you know if, if you want to show a, a horror movie to people who aren't super huge horror people i feel like it's going to work for a lot wider of an audience than a lot of other horror films that we've covered made work. All right. So I guess just some quick housekeeping then, and then we'll wrap this up. Agreed. Um, um, go ahead. I was just going to say, so you have a new Twitter handle.
1: I do. So I had a personal Twitter, but it was set on private for personal reasons. And so I decided to create my own new Twitter handle that y'all need to check out because I have a grand old time. Uh, Twitter handle is at Crowley Finn and it's kind of spelled a little differently Um, I'm at C-R-O W-L-E-Y P-H-O-E-N and that is an homage exactly yeah it's an homage to Aleister Crowley who was a huge kind of um, game player in American occult and as well as just kind of generic occult in general he's a fascinating human being and some people say he was the Antichrist. I don't believe that, but a lot of people do. <laughs> um, we'll
2: definitely cover him in much more detail in a future episode.
1: Absolutely. He's one of my favorite people to study. Um, and then Finn, the P-H-O-E-N, it comes from, like you said, Phoenix, which is uh, an animal that I, I am very attracted to. It has a lot of symbolism for my life. And so I kind of combined the two and created my own little occult name Finn Crowley Um, It helps me fit in with the Wiccans a little bit better because they all rename themselves (laughs) so yeah come check us out I do a lot of um, questions that we like to ask you know scariest movies or uh, Monday moans we complain about (laughs) terrible things that happen on Monday and I also like for advice about you know occult things or give advice to my my listeners so please definitely check me out again it's at crowley finn and finn is p-h-o-e-n and then of course my twitter handle is at nj
2: darkish that does not change or you can also check out the podcasts much less than we should use it uh handle at screen Kings pod you can also be emailed at screen things podcast at gmail.com we have a Facebook group, you know, just if you type screen,
1: you'll find this. All right. Well, we are excited for a few of our episodes that are coming up. We're planning on doing some great movies like The Ring, The Exorcist. There's an occult movie that I want Nathaniel to see so much. It's called The Dark Song. It's beautiful. It's actually about one of the rituals Alistair Crowley performed. Uh, We've got a lot of fun stuff coming up and hopefully John carpenters
2: apocalypse trilogy
1: yeah exactly there's there's a bunch so get excited
2: and also we're going to be doing a lot more with our individual features going forward i feel like that's something that's kind of been missing from a lot of our episodes recently and we want to really bring those back and so i expect a lot more of the occult corner and uh studying the strange so awesome all right. Well,
1: thank you everyone for listening again. We love and appreciate your support. If you would so generously, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps us out so much. Kind of gets our name out there, but we would love to hear feedback from you.
2: Yeah. Also, uh, if you just want to tell a friend, uh, drop a link on Twitter, anything is enormously appreciated. And it, you know, take takes a few seconds of your time and it really does make a huge difference for us. So, we appreciate everything that uh, all, all of the good uh, proselytizing of our podcast so far.
1: All right. Stay spooky, people.